This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays, our series of weekly virtual meetings for medtech leaders. Join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday to hear from the professionals at ClinLogix, who will discuss serious adverse event data capture and management. We'll hear from Jen Kratz of Safety Services and Solange Bishop of Clinical Data Management from ClinLogix. Go to devicetalks.com to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We have been hit by the Friday the 13th bug or whatever other kind of malaise has been circulating around the country. Uh, it's settled on our Device Talks tech, so things are a little different today, but uh, we're going to bring you some really, really great conversations. I had a chance to speak with Henry Sock and Justin Cassidy. They're both of the GPO Vizient. Vizient does many, many more things, but for the sake of this description, I'll just say the GPO. We had the chance to talk about the spike in COVID cases and whether or not hospitals are ready for the surge. Vizient has many, many member hospitals. It's affiliated with most of the major hospitals in the country. So Henry Sock and Justin Cassidy brought a really great perspective. The answer is yes, they're ready PPE-wise and other ways, but some change is coming, particularly for med tech companies, and we'll get into that in this interview. We'll also visit with Kayla Crummer. She's coming to visit with us. I asked Kayla to come on the podcast to talk a bit about how medtechs are able to sell their larger cap items, their robotic surgical systems. It's related a bit to my conversation with Henry Sock and Justin Cassidy. And uh, Kayla kind of came on to reinforce a point that you'll hear today. Change is coming. Medtechs are making that change and uh, we should all continue to track that change. In addition to those two interviews, I'm very happy to be bringing you two new installments. That's two new installments of the two-minute detox. We'll get chapter three from Explorer Surgical. CEO Jennifer Freed will be on to talk about how Explorer Surgical is competing against other companies in the business of connecting ORs with sales reps. And they do other things as well, but that's primarily the the focus uh, that we have. And I'm happy to have a new member of the Two Minute Detox family in this week's podcast, Delve, a great design and development firm will uh, come aboard. President Dave Francino will begin to tell Delve's story and we will have four more chapters or three more chapters of Delve's story in the next three podcasts. Housekeeping note, we will not be doing a podcast the week of Thanksgiving, but we will be back course next week. Finally, before I bring in my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, I want to remind you all that you can be Chris Newmarker for a day. We uh, have an online survey up on our podcast notes on our websites. We've been sharing it on social media. You have the opportunity to pick the newsmakers of 2020. We ask about people, we ask about products, we ask about companies and about events. If you could just take a few minutes, let us know who you think the entities products and or people who made the biggest impact in 2020. We will uh, put that all together and uh, have a great show for you in December, sort of highlighting those newsmakers. So go to devicetalks.com, go to the podcast page. You can look at last week's podcast. You can look at this week's podcast. Both will have a link to the survey. It'll honestly take you less than a minute. So please hop on there and let us know what you think. Now, without any further delay, it's time to bring in my podcast partner, my podcast compadre, Chris Newmarker. 
Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Good to be back. So if this sounds weird, it's only because Chris and I can't see each other. Zoom just was Zoom of doom today. So we're not staring at each other. We're not following our uh, hysterical physical cues. So uh, yeah, pure audio experience, which I just makes it makes it more real school. So enjoy, folks. That's right. We're going to party like it's 1929. <laughs> wow, that didn't even sound good after I said that. I mean, that was a bad year, too. I mean, what the heck? Yeah, I thought that's what you're going for, but... Uh, Let's move on. Let's move on. Of course, the folks are here. The people want to hear. They want to know what were the top five articles of the week, otherwise known as... The New Markers Newsmakers. (laughs) But before we get into those, I did want to release this week's New Markers Newsmakers sound in honor of a, uh, I think, a person who will be missed very much. It has. I saw that a lot on TV when I was uh, was growing up. So, and you know, I I actually read a lot the other day that there were a lot of people overseas that learned English from that show. I heard that too. It's amazing. And I and I just saw on Twitter that uh, Lavar Burton from Star Trek and of course uh, uh, other roots and uh, was it the Reading Rainbow? What was that other program he did that uh, that I missed out? He He's he's got a, a petition going to be the next host, which I think would, would be fantastic. I would love to see. Oh, that'd be great! Yeah, yeah, I think it'd be perfect. So he would be perfect. Not that we're looking to replace Alex Trebek just yet, but uh, but it, he would. No, it, it would be nice. Yeah, he that, that definitely would be that would be a nice uh, you know nice nice switch. But uh, so we have our our theme. It's rolled out now. Let's hit number five on the new markers newsmakers list. Well, number five, we had a nice uh, deep dive story from our, our managing editor, Nancy Crotty, in which uh, you know she talked to some major uh, medical device companies about what's up with the uh, EU medical device regulation. And this is actually, this is a really big issue inside the, uh, the device industry. Uh, I mean, this is like a big shift in the way Europe regulates its medical devices. Uh, the deadline was extended to, you know, to get this thing going was extended until May 2021 because of the pandemic. But the the deadline's coming up now, and uh, you know the um, the the big companies um, appear to be uh, you know like like pretty uh, you know pretty moving along pretty well to you know to, to meet the deadline. But it's uh, it's it sounds like it's harder for uh, the smaller companies, and uh, just just a lot of choices going on too about like what you know because you, you're not just like uh, it's not just for like new devices coming out that uh, that you know the MDR shift applies to you've got to go back and you know get reapproved all this stuff you've had you know approved in europe in the past so there's kind of a lot of decision making going on like what you know which things actually make sense for us to go through this whole process which uh with you know which ones should we just like leave on the wayside at this point um so a lot of uh, a lot of work going on even amid the uh the pandemic uh to 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 meet this new uh new medical device regulation in Europe. It's, it's both remarkable and unremarkable that we're facing this deadline again, because we had, I think, on one of our first two or three episodes of the podcast, uh, talked about the uh, the delay that, that had been put in because of COVID. And the, the thought at the time was like, well, this is great news if people take advantage of the time they're being given. I don't know if people delayed or simply didn't have the resources because of COVID, but uh, I hope companies are able to uh, to get themselves on track. Exactly. Yeah, but some some really good insights about what's going on, and you know, from uh, from Nancy Crow in this article. So I encourage people to read it. It's a it's a good a good read. That's on medical design and outsourcing, but you can also find that on Mass Device. So 
Absolutely. What is number four, Chris Newmarker? Number four on the list, we've got uh, Abbott uh, launched its uh, Ionic RF generator, and this is like a you know minimally invasive treatment for, you know to to provide pain management. So you know this is just you know another, another you know another extra technology to hopefully you know help people uh, you know ha- handle pain versus uh, having to take more medication. So so this seems to be good news on the uh, on the front of. Uh, you know, fi- finding other ways to help people uh, not have to take as many op- opioids. That's fantastic. I love that. I love that MedTech is uh, pushing on in this front and, and really trying to move people off of opioids. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, like a piece of good good news there. And now to move on to a little bit of uh, less good news. Yeah, so number three on our on our countdown is uh, n- not so good news. Um, the uh, the Wa- Wall Street Journal had a report that uh, that uh, cited federal uh, data showing that only uh, you know, that thirty percent of you know nursing homes that had rapid testing equipment you know they didn't use it to you know test single resident or staff member. Um, even though the regulations are telling them to do so. So that's uh, some disappointing news. Chris, before we wrap up the New Markers Newsmakers list, it's time for our opening keynote conversation. I'm going to bring in Henry Sock and Justin Cassidy. This conversation is brought to you by our good friends at Explorer Surgical. Before we get into the conversation with Henry and Justin, going to roll out Explorer Surgical's Chapter 3 of the Two Minute Detox. Let's hear from CEO Jennifer Freed. Welcome to this installment of the Two Minute Detox featuring Explorer Surgical. In this segment, CEO Jennifer Freed will explain how Explorer Surgical will distinguish itself from others in the field who are trying to connect sales representatives to the OR. Let's listen. There are two primary benefits that we deliver to our med device customers, and I'll talk a little bit about each. The first is being able to help our med tech customers deliver best-in-class case support to the providers that are using their product. And the second is helping them codify and get data back from the field. So on the first part of it, we know that the relationship between med tech companies and HCPs has been forever changed as a result of this. But even before COVID, the best reps that are in the room are not just there talking to the doctor, they're really supporting the entire surgical team. So what we do is help force multiply this best in class efforts, taking the best practices for an implant or for a particular suite of products and helping deliver that content visually to the team in the room while ensuring that the rep or clinical specialist is still able to guide that team through those best practices, whether they're there in person, whether they're at home remoting in, or whether it's some combination. On the second part of our value proposition, we help capture real-time structured data about what's actually happening in the field with your product and bring it back to that business unit or back to the corporate level. So you're not just relying on anecdotal evidence of, oh, I heard from one of my reps that this thing happened in this case, but you're actually seeing, wow, the surgeons that are using this product in this region are going through the procedure 20% faster than this other region. What are they doing and how can we learn from it? So it's being able to capture that data easily, real time, not entering it in Salesforce at the end of the day, and having the power of that data to come back to make your product, to make your team even better. Thanks for listening to this segment of the Two Minute Detox featuring Explorer Surgical. Tune in next week for our final chapter where Jennifer Freed will explain where Explorer Surgical is headed next. For more information, go to explorersurgical.com. Well, Henry Sock and Justin Cassidy, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Tom. Great to have you both. I want to really get an assessment of, of where we are with the pandemic, how MedTech might respond. But before we get into that, could we just have a, a, a very short elevator pitch on, on Vizian so people know where you both are coming from? I know you're a member-driven healthcare performance improvement company. I know you've got a lot of, uh, of the larger hospital systems in the country, if not all of them, uh, as part of your organization. But but what is it that, uh, how, how do you describe to Vizian? How do you describe Vizian to someone uh, at a cocktail party? Sure thing, Tom. So Vizian is a healthcare performance improvement company that offers data and analytics, group purchasing, advisory services, and education to its members, which include more than half of the nation's hospitals. So uh, a really a, a large cohort that we have interest to your audience. Uh, SG2, where Henry and I sit, is a Vizian subsidiary company that conducts industry research for strategic planning by provider organizations. So we talked to hospital C-suite. We're essentially a healthcare think tank that starts to, to consider where healthcare is and where it's going next. So uh, let's let's take a minute just looking back at where we've been. Uh, what is Vizient's assessment of how the healthcare system responded to COVID-19 starting in March, starting at the very beginning? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Tom. And in top of everyone's minds in terms of viral resurgence is Q4 2020 actually going to be deja vu Q2. And it turns out that, well, hospitals have done a tremendous amount to prepare. They've started incident command centers. They have existing roadmaps in play now to build field hospitals. They have new protocols for patient triage. They have also stockpiled their personal protective equipment such that the shortages that we saw earlier in the year are not going to be as, as acute the second time around. And in many cases, there's much better access to testing. So all around, much better preparations in play uh, amidst this resurgence. Well, that's great. I mean, we do, we have heard that uh, lessons were learned and that people are more confident going forward. We're hearing that from a lot of the, the med tech companies themselves, which it's in their interest to say things are better, but it's, it's nice to get that uh, that confirmed. So let's then uh, look at where we are. The cases are beginning to go up. Uh, folks are getting rightly concerned. I'm wondering if I need to wear a mask on my Zoom calls now. It's getting a little, <laughs> a little dicey out there. Um, where, uh, where are we now with the cases rising and how are the hospitals sort of responding to, uh, to this third wave? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it is really troubling. And, and in most cases, hospitals have tried to stay open for elective surgical procedures uh, to serve the patients in, in, in communities uh, amidst these resurgences again, taking those lessons learned from earlier in the pandemic such they can enable that these activities to continue in a safe manner. Um, it, it, there are certainly some new developments here. Often now we're seeing younger patients end up at the hospital. They will be less severe. They'll have shorter lengths of stay. So getting patients in, getting out as, as soon as possible. There's been a tremendous amount of clinical innovation and uh, in, in sort of avoiding ICU care if, if at all possible. They're now even successful therapeutics in play. Um, some, some approved just this morning from, from FDA under the Emergency Use Authorization Act that can be administered at different points during a patient's admission uh, that can also cut that length of stay considerably. Um, in, in short, it's still a novel virus, but it's a lot less unknown. That's 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 comforting to hear, uh, Henry. How does that translate into uh, what's? I mean, this is a med tech podcast. Let's talk about how it translates into healthcare that is provided, that is delivered. What kind of impact does it have on the use of medical device products, be them for surgery or for other purposes? 
So I think that uh, in the first wave, I think as Justin's already mentioned, we saw that there was a, uh, a decline in elective procedures as as we locked down uh, to deal with the first wave of the coronavirus. But we've seen those volumes now start to begin to come back. Uh, and so, as Justin mentioned, I think we're in kind of uh, this kind of sine wave pattern that's out there where we see cases rise. And then as we get control of things, uh, cases kind of um, uh, cases kind of get back to a more manageable level. We're hoping that that continues for the foreseeable future. Uh, but I think that uh, that being said, I think that for device manufacturers, it's important to understand a couple of things. First of all, I think that the um, we've seen the volumes come back uh, slightly. I don't think they're back to pre-COVID levels yet, but I think we're seeing them come back. And obviously that's very region dependent. So, you know, it's not, this is not just kind of one uh, one size fits all approach. Different markets are seeing different levels of COVID right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the response from health systems and the utilization of medical devices is going to vary by region. Uh, and so I think that's important for folks to understand. You got to kind of take a look at this at a local level and see how that plays out uh, in individual reason, uh, regions. The second thing that I would encourage folks to look at is um, budgets. So I think we talked about this a little bit um, uh, earlier, and we've been chatting with our members about this uh, on an ongoing basis. Because of the um, uh, cost of care uh, and because of the importance of information technology, uh, capital budgets for most healthcare organizations are very constrained at this point in time. So available capital dollars to purchase technology is probably more tight than we've seen it over the past several years. And I would expect that to continue throughout 2021. So for device manufacturers, I think it's important to kind of understand that. And it's going to be important for them to demonstrate return on investment for any devices that they're going to, going to try to move into the uh, healthcare marketplace. Uh, and we're seeing um, some folks go to a, instead of trying to get the dollars away from capital budgets to operational side. So there's been a move recently, Tom, to kind of move away from direct purchasing to a subscription model. And we've seen that in several uh, in several uh, instances. Interesting. So I would suspect that for certain devices, maybe not all, but for certain devices, that subscription model will become more important as you're building a business going forward, uh, at least throughout the next 18 months or so. When does that come into play, the potential for a subscription model, like a, a large capital item being purchased, a, a large imaging unit or robotic surgery center or something like that? Sure, definitely. Uh, definitely for the, the big iron manufacturers are going to see, uh, and they're moving more in that direction towards a uh, towards a subscription model. A lot of the uh, kind of uh, uh, medical imaging, CTMR, you know, PET scanner kind of situations are moving to a uh, to that type of a model or an enterprise kind mm -hmm. of agreement with a health system where everything is bundled. It's the technology, it's the service, it's the training, it's additional software updates. And so we've seen a move in that direction um, uh, for, for quite a while now. And I would expect for the big iron vendors that will continue. When you're talking about kind of consumables and the smaller devices, um, that's another uh, area that I think we're seeing kind of group purchasing arrangements and enterprise-wide purchasing arrangements. So I can spread that, you know, the more I can get uh, under one contract, the easier it is for me to administer that information and to be able to uh, deploy those resources throughout the health system. So I think that's that's going to be a model going forward too. 
So what impact does that have on the med tech industry? I mean, that's a completely different way of, of accounting, a completely different way of recording sales, a completely different business model. At least that's how I see it. Perhaps this is there's been a migration toward this that I've that I've missed. But uh, is this something that we'll see in only maybe 10% of the transactions? Or is this going to be a wave that sort of overtakes these companies that previously were counting on that larger one-time per, one purchase? That's a great point. And having worked on the uh, medical industry side for a while, I'm very familiar with kind of how they recognize sales and how they approach that. So I think you're right on the money. I mean, I think that uh, this is going to require a wholesale rethinking of how business is organized uh, for some for some manufacturers. And I think that they have to start thinking in terms of recurring revenue as opposed to a transaction. And so I think that um, a lot of the major vendors are kind of moving in that direction and understand that. And I think that uh, the other thing I would I would also mention is that in our conversations with our members, if you look at kind of capital dollars, what we've seen has been up, up to 75% of available capital dollars have been going to IT-related resources, supporting the electronic health record, moving now to remote patient monitoring and virtual technology. And so the pool of available capital dollars that are there for devices and for big iron and for device manufacturers has shrunk. Uh, and so I think it's going to be incumbent on them to to, first of all, create a purchasing model that allows health system to take advantage of something other than a transactional relationship with the vendor. Um, and then secondly, also build the case for return on investment because CFOs in most organizations today are looking for a faster return on investment than they might have in the past. And so if you're talking about big dollar items, uh, you know, what normally was a five-year, maybe a seven-year return on investment, CFOs in most of the conversations that I've had with our members right now are looking for an 18 to 24 to 36-month return on investment. So that story has to be there as well if you're going to capture the available dollars that are there for those types of purchases. Justin, two questions re related to the hospitals. Number one, the, the the IT expenses, and this can be for Justin or for Henry, but are these large one-time expenses that are being used to update infrastructure, to to improve wireless signals, to get all the computers and everything you need in the, in the hospital to run better remotely? Or are these going to be costs that are going to be carried forward going on, annual costs are going to have to, that are going to continue to take a, a chunk out of any dollars that might have gone toward metal device expenses or costs? Sure. So I can start and then maybe Justin, and Justin can jump in. But um, most of it has been um, uh, kind of to, so the, the rise in telemedicine uh, has prompted organizations to invest heavily in that area. So we saw that uh, as COVID began to uh, appear in the country. Uh, and, and so the increase in telemedicine visits has gone up dramatically, right? Exponentially almost. Uh, and so a lot of the investment went into ramping up existing telemedicine services to handle the demand for COVID. Some of that was uh, telemedicine platforms that were built upon existing electronic health records. So some of that was that way. Some of that was in mm -hmm. uh, adding new capability, new bandwidth, more uh, flexibility in terms of being able to, uh, to provide that. Uh, Justin, any other comments from your side? Right. It, it, it's sort of transitioning now from that immediate need to what is going to be sustainable in the future. There's uh, 
with, with new care models requires new physical infrastructure. Think about hybrid visits for virtual health in which some are in person, some are remote. What do the facilities look like to administer that? Is the physician going to be in an office with you know a, a sort of rec- a recording studio, if you mm-hmm. will? Um, along with the patient room, uh, will that be able to facilitate provider-provider consults in some new or novel way? We do a lot of work with academic medical centers, and there's a lot of talk in terms of uh, training and, and residency. How do you enable safe sort of observation and training for surgical procedures if you're trying to minimize the number of folks in the operating room and having a sort of uh, you know piped-in capability to be able to watch and observe those procedures is is becoming increasingly important. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in also kind of transitioning to the, the near future, as many hospitals are taking a pivot to hospital at home programs, which require completely different infrastructure. You think about like an EICU bed that you actually deliver to a patient's home. You know, what, is, what does that look like in terms of infrastructure? And um, s- some of these partners have identified 18 different individual work streams, all of which might be of interest to our, the med device community in terms of building out new horizontals and verticals to facilitate this and, and you know, novel care redesign. Interesting. And, and yeah, you kind of hit a point, a point I was going to ask regarding at least the sales reps or the proctors that are involved with, with uh, OR. We've, we've talked to a number of companies, both the medical device companies and the providers of technologies that will allow them to be in the room virtually through a camera of some connection. Is, that, is this a permanent reset of that relationship, do you think? Or when hopefully when things calm down, we may go back to how, how we, uh, reps and surgeons interacted previously. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a question on top of everyone's minds right now. And you know, what, what happens a lot is clinical inertia. So once you actually make a change, it kind of sticks on. And it's, uh, that might be what happens here. We've tried to you know, really encourage our, our clients to avoid institutional regression to past best practices and really think about accelerating their strategic planning towards the future and think about how to enable these types of capabilities that you're building now to, to build them in a sustainable way uh, to, to really kind of, you know, meet, meet some of the pain points of the past and, and scale, you know, a lot of these sort of training and, and so on in a, in a virtual way. It's much more, uh, it's certainly where the future is headed. Great. And just to, to, to revisit a point you made at the start with PPE and just the, the plans that have been placed to, to deal with this, regarding the PPE specifically, is there, a, is there a confidence that we have enough going forward? And is this going to be sort of the new normal, not to, I don't want to use that overused term, but is this going to be the new requirement for PPP, PPE levels going, going forward? From now on, we're going to have to have X amount in store at the hospital ready for the next pandemic. Again, is this a, a, a new way of doing business for hospitals? Yeah, I mean the idea of actually instead of lean operations, actually having you know those stockpiles on hand, it's it is a really interesting thought. It's uh, it, it is a total shift from the past. Right. Um, thinking about these kind of like short-term warehouses that might be shared between different groups in a community, um, that's that's certainly something that that might stick around. We saw you know when there were acute shortages, a lot of innovation techniques to preserve and even reuse PPE if there was an acute shortage. Um, those could be reenacted if, if necessary. Um, hospitals, though, seem to be in a much better situation than a lot of the, the ambulatory activity and even sort of medical adjacent types of, uh, types of endeavors. You think about dentists or even vets and the, and the QPP shortages. I, I have friends that are optometrists. They're, they're also in, in using and burning through a lot of PPE. Uh, where are those costs going to be incurred? Are they going to be in, you know, incorporated into 
a medical billing? Are they going to be added costs, uh, you know, tacked on to a patient's bill? That's that's still kind of up for grabs at this point. Um, but yeah, that's a, it, it's a really interesting question. Two more questions. One specific, one general. The specific one is in the, the acquisition of medical device companies. Is the model where a medical device company had a convince the technology committee to purchase a piece of equipment. Is that committee now making decisions on the operational side of things or has the power shifted a bit to single administrators who control those budgets, whether or not they want to incur those subscription costs? How, how's that, how are decisions being made? So I think that um, there's been a little bit of a shift in the way those decisions are being made. I think that in the past, uh, device manufacturers had to uh, convince people at the at the point of care as to uh, the the benefits of a piece of technology that they that they wanted to purchase or they wanted to implement. Uh, these days, as I go back to the conversation we had, Tom, about budgets and where they are today, m- more of those decisions are being made at the executive level. And I think that we've seen uh, kind of a uh, integration or a consolidation of the chief strategy officer, the chief uh, innovation officer, and the chief operation officer, that triumvirate sitting together at the table and making the decision for the entire health system as to about how they're going to spend their scarce uh, available capital dollars. So that, I think, from a device manufacturer's level is a different message than messaging to a clinician mm-hmm. about the benefits of things. And so the messaging that you need to provide at the executive level about the benefits and the return on investment becomes critical uh, in this in this day and age. And I think, again, I would suspect that that's going to remain in place for at least through 2021. We'll see what happens with how we get control of this going forward. So it sounds as if, obviously, cl- uh, clinical benefits are always important to everyone. But if you're trying to convince administrators to the benefit of your device, you 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 really need to emphasize the financial benefit to the institution. Absolutely. And so if you can document cost reduction, if you can document better outcomes as a result of using it, that's a message that resonates, I think, very well at the executive level um, beyond just the kind of tangible clinical benefits. Uh, they're, they're worried about uh, cost reduction and, and outcomes improvement. And just final question, just sort of a big picture what are pressures or the problems that are that we're going to be facing going forward that maybe haven't emerged yet? What are what are you looking for that might create problems either for the hospitals or for my audience, the medical device? Tom, that's that's a really easy one. It's it's workforce burnout. Our our doctors and nurses across the country are, uh, you know, amidst these surges and resurges, uh, in, in 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 a great degree of uncertainty as to how long those are going to pop up in a market by market specific factor. Uh, some are calling it the hammer in the dance, some are calling it viral whack-a-mole, but is that sort of activity going to be sustainable in the future? Um, you know, you're just putting a lot of pressure on folks and, and there's a lot of emotions all around. And will they be able to sustain that that sort of increased stress in the months and years to come? You know, in the last, the last eight months or so, we've been playing viral defense, but what does viral offense look like? And you start to get more proactive in managing and mitigating those those curves before they even start. That's really top of mind. And then I would I would add to that, uh, Tom, that from the device manufacturer's perspective, I think the biggest challenge that they're going to have going forward is being able to get the attention of the executive team, because right now they've got their heads down. They're trying to do the clinical work of treating uh, patients uh, in a resurging COVID environment, and so honing your message so that it's crisp, that the the value proposition is clear to the audience that you're trying to address is is going to be critical because your ability to get 
FaceTime <laughs> via Zoom or however that happens these days and get the attention of the executive team is going to be limited. So that messaging has to be right on point and has to be delivered in a crisp, clear manner if you, if you want to continue to have those conversations. All right. Well, those are great insights. I appreciate uh, the check-in and, and I think we'll have to do this again uh, in a few months, hopefully when things are are rebounding in the spring. So uh, Justin Cassidy and Henry Sock, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the time. All right. It was great to hear from Justin, Henry, and Jennifer of Explorer Surgical. Chris Newmarker, let's move on to the Newmarker's Newsmakers, number two. Well, number two is uh, we're already getting uh, industry uh, reactions to uh, – to uh, Joe Biden's presumptive uh, win of the presidential uh, race. And uh, th- this comes at the same time that a uh, president like Biden is uh, already uh, moving forward with a uh, coronavirus advisory uh, board. He's uh, been talking about the Affordable Care Act. So I mean, it definitely seems like uh, this, this upcoming Biden administration, we're going to be uh, having a, a lot of stuff related to healthcare, And you already have, you know, medical device, you know, people in the industry like uh, reacting to it. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, we had uh, actually uh, Mathematic President Brian Johnson, who uh, is uh, was was actually the uh, the founder of uh, Device Talks. Actually, um, he uh, he was uh, yes, our our predecessor. He uh, he uh, said, you know, he was really calling for uh, the need for you know expanded access to, to rapid testing, um, which was basically what we were just you know talking about uh, with with the pandemic, um, and that um, you know we also had. Uh, you know, Shay Mandel at the Medical Alley Association here in Minnesota, he was, uh, you know, uh, you know, saying that the incoming Biden administration uh, should should focus on our medical health care supply train, um, you know, and, and just, you know, you know kind of, um, you know, like, you know, you know, taking a look at some of these successes that we've you know seen for the industry during the pandemic, like changes we've made, um, like shifts to telehealth, like how can we like, uh, you know, keep these things going to uh past the the pandemic um you know like i you know like mandel had a good quote he said you know we don't want to go back so so you know that's uh some, some good stuff so we already have people in the industry who are uh you know saying yeah we're gonna have a um you know it, uh, you know the you know the, you know the uh, the, the vote counting all looks like we're gonna have a biden administration so you know like what you know what, what can we do to make sure the biden administration is uh you know doing things that are positive for the industry has Mass Device declared a winner in uh, North Carolina, Georgia, or Arizona yet, Chris? No, we have not. That's not our. Uh, that's not our job. We're not. Uh... <laughs> that's right. Run away, run away. All right, Chris. Now it's time for the the big number one, and it's worth pointing out at this point that uh, Nancy Crotty did write the the fifth item, and Sean Hooley, who was on the show last week, uh, has written the other top four items. So way to go, Sean. Good week for Sean Hooley. Yeah, Sean, you know, Sean, um, yeah, top item is, uh, you know, that, you know, Strikers, you know, finally closed the right medical buy and they've uh, also uh, sold some of their uh, arthroplasty systems to a, to DGO, which was you know, part of the agreement that they had with antitrust regulators here in the in the U.S. and Britain was to, you know, sell some of those businesses to help, you know, maintain some competition. So, you know, here, here we are, middle of pandemic, you know, middle of a tough recession, um, really, um, stressful post-election time here in the u.s um but uh, we've got a million a multi-billion dollar medtech merger that uh, just got completed that makes striker even bigger than it already was in the ortho space 
Yes, and we were scheduled to speak with a striker executive for this week's podcast. Unfortunately, for some reason, they were kind of busy this week, but uh, we're planning to have them on the podcast next week. So do stay tuned. Now it's time for our closing keynote conversation. As I mentioned at the top, happy to have Kayla Crum of True Securities back. Kayla will be talking a bit about how medical device companies are finding ways, new ways to sell their large surgical systems to cash-strapped hospitals. But before we get into that conversation, it's my pleasure to introduce our newest member of the two-minute detox family, Delve. And we'll hear from President Dave Franchino. This installment of the Two Minute Detox is brought to you by Dell, a strategic design innovation consultant that works with MedTechs to research, design, and implement innovative new products and approaches across their businesses. Here, we'll hear from President Dave Franchino about how the company helps clients identify unmet needs and then create the products and services to meet those needs. Let's listen. We do that with a, a multidisciplinary approach that really kind of focuses on three broad pillars of innovation. The first of those is, is strategy, and that's really kind of building a, a launch pad for change within the organization. We have a department of design insights that's all about using the tools of ethnography and discovery research to uncover unmet needs in the marketplace. Where are there changes in behavior? Where are there changes in the regulatory landscape? Maybe changes in technology that might have uncovered unmet needs and create opportunities for solving problems and bringing business in the marketplace. And then uh, the middle pillar of our organization is design. And that's all about intersecting those strategies in a real passionate and evocative way. It's about bringing excitement and energy and emotion to those strategies and trying to make products and services intuitive, exciting, actionable so that they really connect with users. Uh, we have an industrial design department, digital interaction design department, a service design department, and then a visual communications department that are all about taking those strategies and then turning those into concepts, testing those concepts with users to help understand companies understand where are the best opportunities for us and how can we bring those to life in a way that we're confident is going to connect with the marketplace. And then the third pillar of our organization is a, a deep engineering competence. And that's really about kind of taking those concepts into reality, bring them into something that can actually be manufactured, delivered as reasonable and feasible from a cost-effective perspective. And it starts with the deep bench of mechanical engineering includes electrical and software engineering. And we're very proud, particularly the med device work we do of our human factors engineering department, which is all about the kind of cognitive aspects of human factors, how our products easy and intuitive to use, how we certain that people aren't going to make mistakes when using them, obviously particularly important for medical devices. And then also the neck down human factors, all about the physiological, the body as a machine, range of motion, ease of use. Backing all of that up in our offices, is our prototyping staff where we can create prototypes of products, use that to both test and confirm the ideas we've come up with. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Two Minute Detox. To find out more about Delve, go to delve.com. Kayla Crum, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. Going to have you as a regular uh, regular member now. This is great. And I appreciate your, your stepping in because I wanted to follow up on uh, the conversation we had with Vizient about how large 
capital metal device companies are changing the way they sell their products. Uh, in that discussion that I, I played previously, and I, I shared the details with you, we're talking about metal device companies maybe moving to more of a, a subscription model as opposed to an outright having a hospitals pay a larger price tag. So from your perspective, you track all of the large med techs, you track Stryker, I think we talked about Globus, some of the others in Zimmer, Biomet. Uh, what are you seeing in this field with companies that are selling surgical systems or other large items? Uh, are they selling them in a different way? I think that's completely um, what we're seeing. So, I mean, more flexible payment arrangements, including volume commitments, which are important, you know, as, as procedures are coming back or leasing agreements. Those are certainly things that we're hearing more and more about from both companies and in conversations with larger hospital systems. I think in part, that's probably what's driving some of the, the recent strength that we're seeing in orthorobotics. Like you mentioned, you know, Stryker had a great quarter. Um, they call out Mako, uh, their Mako robotics system specifically as a driver. And they're expecting, you know, the fourth quarter to potentially set a record in terms of placements. I think Globus has said similar. They sell a spine robotic system and they said that they sold and or, you know, placed more robotic systems in October than they did in all of the third quarter combined. And then Zimmer Biomet also called out Rosa, uh, their Ro Rosa robotic system as doing really well in the third quarter. Um, but they, they did mention that most of their systems were being placed by lease or that they're leasing their systems in the third quarter. So how do you view this, this transition? Is it a, a sizable shift or is it something that we see regularly in the medical device world? Because I mean, leases aren't unheard of, but uh, is this a significant change? I would say, you know, we are definitely seeing more of it in recent quarters. I think ultimately that would be the goal for a lot of companies, though, is is to to over time put in place these volume commitments where a hospital is either you know purchasing the the device up front or you know placing the device. Um, the company would be placing the device in the hospital, and ultimately by contracting but with volume commitments, the companies can almost sort of guarantee that those recurring revenue dollars will, will come uh, to fruition over time. So is this a place that the medical device companies wanted to go with where they wanted to migrate more toward a leasing commitment as opposed to an outright direct sale? I think combination is, is always best to know that you get that revenue up front is always a, a, a good thing. But I would say that companies are becoming much more flexible and, you know, almost much more flexible, I guess, in, in those arrangements. And I mean, point that they're, they're placing more systems. So this seems to be a more effective way of getting their technology out there. I wonder why this wasn't done initially. Is this something that hospitals were not interested in entertaining? And that's why this wasn't the way that these this technology was being sold before? Yeah, I think that with, I mean, just with with COVID and just, I mean, it's challenging right now for a lot of hospitals to predict, you know, how many mm -hmm. dollars that they're going to have going into next year you know, what their budgets are going to look like. And so for that reason, I think that that's been what has sort of driven that that recent change um, in terms of, of volume commitments. But prior to COVID, would the medical device companies have preferred to sell outright for a single price tag? Or would they have preferred the hospitals to enter in a leasing agreement like they're doing now? I think that probably prior to COVID, you, you'd want those dollars up front. But again, I think that they're becoming more open to those flexible arrangements. 
So what is the the downside if they're placing more systems, if they're if they're entering the leases? I guess the fact is that the lease can be broken, that it, obviously having money up front is a lot better guarantee than having a contract for the money to come. Uh, is that the only, is that the downside here for mental device companies? The fact that they're just not getting that money in their own bank that they have to wait for it to come? I think that's probably the biggest downside is just predictability of, of, of those revenues. You know, but I would say that some companies, and it varies from company to company, just revenue recognition you know, some companies are recognizing those revenue dollars up front, um, and others will, you know, recognize those revenues over over a period of time. How does this change how you, as an analyst, value these companies? Does it require you to throw out your old models and create new ones, or just make modifications to how you're already assessing these companies? How big of a change is this from your perspective? Yeah. Um, so I would say, again, it varies from company to company, depending on how they're recognizing revenue. I think that, you know, again, some of these companies are recognizing the revenue up front. Um, and so that makes it a little bit easier. But I think that even in in, uh, in this environment, it's challenging to, to predict, you know, whether or not even a hospital will evaluate a robotic system at this time um, or, you know, through the end of this year. Again, it seems like all of the trends are kind of pointing in the right direction. But if we do see another round of shutdowns, what does the CapEx environment kind of look like through the end of this year and into next year? Um, So that is sort of still one of the biggest factors of, I guess, uncertainty in our model. Final, final question. I have kind of just occurred to me as you were talking, looking forward to COVID and unfortunately the surges we're seeing, what are you hearing from the larger medical device companies in terms of their anticipation of a slowdown in business again? They seem to be more confident that they're not going to, we're not going to see a repeat of Q2. Yeah, I think um, you're spot on. It seems like um, companies are are comfortable as at least as as they sit today um, through October, but um, but you know these these more recent uh, kind of soft shutdowns and you know ultimately potentially more mandatory shutdowns. There is there is still a lot of uncertainty um, in the fourth quarter going into to Q1 and questions around you know um, ultimately are people still going to be using up their deductibles? Are we still working through backlog? Are there is there going to be a pull forward effect? Are people going to have procedures done sort of in advance of going back to work? I think there's a lot of, of weird factors that we're trying to balance in, in our model in, in the fourth quarter. And then we haven't even, in thinking about the, the, the first quarter, it's going to be um, a very different, weird first quarter that we're still, uh, still kind of thinking through. Yeah, we've got some changes coming in January, I think, too. So uh, interesting times indeed. Kayla, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Of course. Good to catch up with you, Tom. Thank you, Kayla Crum. Thank you, Dave Francino, for joining us on the podcast. Chris Newmarker, it's time to share some social information. Where can folks find you? Hey, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Newmarker. Uh, always, you know, always happy to, to connect, network. Looking forward to it. And uh, I am on LinkedIn. I am uh, Tom Salemi. You can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. And uh, of course, uh, you can do us a favor by uh, by sharing this podcast on social media. And I had uh, previously said we will give shout outs to folks who do share. So I do want to thank Giovanni Loricello, who was on the podcast. Uh, he's from the Mullings Group. He was on the podcast early on. 
and remains a uh, a loyal poster of the podcast episode. So thanks, Giovanni, for uh, for doing that. And uh, we'd love for all of you to uh, help spread the word and to to help make this podcast as as good as it can be. The more people listening, the uh, better guests we get. So uh, it's uh, it's just really a thing you can do to help us out, and we'd be very very grateful. So that's it. Thanks, folks. Tune in next time. We'll have another uh, great episode of the Device Talks Weekly podcast waiting for you. Stay safe and take care.